Hey there, listeners. Welcome to Horror Movie Club, the show where two dudes who are not quite nerds but not quite noobs choose a horror movie each week to rate and review. I'm Brian, I'm on the phone with Ashvin, and today we are discussing The Omen from 1976. Directed by Richard Donner, written by David Seltzer, starring Gregory Peck, Lee Remick, David Warner, and Harvey Stevens. In this film, as strange occurrences and tragedies plague a wealthy political family, Robert Thorne seeks to find the truth about his son, Damien, who he thinks may be the cause of the family's woes. If you're new to the show, uh, we're going to talk about this movie spoiler-free for the first 15 or 20 minutes, but after we play a little musical interlude, we're going to transition into spoiler territory and walk through the plot and review the film. So once you hear that music, it's time to duck out if you haven't seen this yet. Uh, Most of you hopefully have. This is a pretty big classic uh, religious horror movie. You had seen this, right, Ash? You know, I don't think I've ever seen the uh, original. I've seen the remake. Uh, this is okay. my first time sitting through this one. You'd seen this one? Yes, I had seen this one, and I've seen the remake as well. The remake, of course, was released on June 6, 2006, and by complete accident, Ashwin and I are recording this episode on June 6. Dude. That is goes, wild how that worked out. I think, yeah, I was doing the math today, right? Yeah, it's kind of crazy we're recording this on 6-6, uh, but... If you look at the year that we're recording this in, 2022, if you add those twos together, today is kind of like 666 in a way. Whoa. Mind blown. <laughs> I'm kind of nervous about recording this episode. Hey, what are we doing here? <laughs> I know. We're just doing, tempting all kinds of things. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, well, let's discuss this and just hope we don't summon Satan somewhere along the way. <laughs> all right. Uh, there was a bit of a satanic boom here in movies from like, I don't know, 1968 through 1976 here maybe. We had Roseberry's Baby in 1968, The Exorcist in 73. Um, mm-hmm. I think The Blood on Satan's Claw was somewhere around there. Was that like 71 maybe? Sure. Yeah. Um, and I was trying to figure out why that might be. Um and I, th- could, I, I uh, kind of was thinking maybe the year 1966 could have, like, made that stuff pop up in everybody's mind. Because, you, you know, just those two digits together maybe is a bit ominous. And then there mm. was inevitably a June 6, 1966. Oh, yeah. That um, gave rise to it. Yeah, yeah. And then in reading up on it, I realized Anton LaVey created the Church of Satan in 1966. Hmm. Uh, the Satanic Bible was published in 1969. The Manson murders happened in 1969. Uh, mm-hmm. I kind of thought maybe this could be a like pushback on the free love from the 60s as well. Yeah, that's what I kind of thought. Uh, more to do with like the 60s, 70s movements uh, on the free love stuff. Um, yeah. And like trying to scare people maybe with using religion. Because, yeah. Uh, yeah, would you say like religion horror isn't like as po- like the conjuring was kind of religious horror, right? Yeah, I'd say the Conjuring franchise is the closest thing we have to religious horror happening nowadays. Like aside from the like rare exorcism knockoff that comes every now and again these days. Yeah, right. It's not like a very popular genre anymore. Um but yeah, yeah. it's crazy crazy doing like those those ten years you had like some of the biggest films come out. Yeah, and then uh so we talked about this on our Blood on Satan's Claw episode as well, which we've now referenced two episodes in a row, but between 1958 and 79, there was a huge decrease in the religiousness 
of Americans. So I think that that could be part of it as well. Uh, there's also a book published in 1970 called The Late Great Planet Earth. Um, and the New York Times declared it the best-selling nonfiction book of the 70s. And it was all a prophecy that the world was ending and that the events foretold in the book of Revelation were already beginning to happen. Oh, that'll uh, do it. And yeah. that the second coming of Christ was approaching. So yeah. I think that was probably a big influence too. And it specifically influenced this movie because the producer, Harvey Bernard, was talking to a friend of his who was an evangelical Christian who had read this book. And he was like, you know, this the Antichrist is possibly a child walking the earth today and nobody even knows it. And then mm-hmm. that, that gave... Bernard, the idea for this movie, and he hired David Seltzer to write the script. Yeah, that's really cool. That makes a lot yeah. of sense. And, and that actually, uh, you know, like when you compare, talk about those three movies like The Exorcist, this one, Rosemary's Baby, that, that is kind of like a common thing where it's all about these kids who are potentially like possessed and like some evil spirit thing. Um, so, yeah, uh, that, that whole thing about like the second coming of whoever uh, makes sense why like the kids were the focus here. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it also like makes sense that it's kind of woven into a period where like the kids of the baby boomers had gone through, or I mean, I'm sorry, like I guess the kids of the great generation, like the baby boomers had just gone through this whole free love thing. And like the seventies were just grittier and in decline. And you know, there was a bit of a loss of innocence in the sixties and seventies with like Vietnam, the Manson stuff, Kennedy assassination. And I think there had to be a bit of a reflection of like what's happening to America, like what's happening to the kids of America. Right. So I think it's that's maybe not a coincidence either that so much of this, even Blood on Satan's Claw, like focuses on youth. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. There was that yeah. whole staged uh, moon landing thing too. Oh my God, here we go again. <laughs> it's just, you know, kids then. <laughs> what kind of world are they growing up in? It's got to be scary. <laughs> Where people are faking moon landings. Exactly. Just making up planets to land on now. It's interesting. It's not a planet, Ash. <laughs> That's what I keep telling them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Um, okay. The Omen. <laughs> we just, we're going to have to have it out about the moon landing at some point. Maybe well, that can be a Patreon episode. Sounds good. Uh, So the owner was director Richard Donner's big break. Two years later, he directed Superman with Christopher Reeve, which was enormously successful. It was one of the biggest movies of that year in 1978. He then directed the Goonies, Scrooge, and the Lethal Weapon franchise. I had no idea this was all the same guy. I know. Isn't that crazy? Like so many influential films. Very influential yeah, he also like produced some influential stuff, uh, lots of TV and movies. He produced the Tales from the Crypt TV series. Oh, cool. Wow. Pretty cool guy. Yeah. yeah, I remember I think he died like last year or the year before, and there was like a lot of people kind of like paying tribute to him just because of how big of an impact he's had on the industry. So, sure. Um, it's cool. cool this is one of his earlier films. Yeah, right? Uh, um, you, think, you think this was like his breakout? Because I mean, it, it did incredibly, right? Yeah, it did do really well. Like, it was, what, the box office, it was a $2.8 million movie, and the box office was $60.9 million. It was the sixth highest grossing film of 1976. Iraqi was number one that year. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it did really well. A big revenue number, a big profit number. It's kind of hard to believe the budget was so low with some of these locations they filmed in, right? Like, Oh, yeah. They, like, shot in Jerusalem and Rome and... 
Right. I, it feels like Gregory Peck was a big actor too, so... I think so, yeah. This must have been like towards the later side of his career, so he would have been a pretty big yeah. name, I think. Yeah, apparently he was big in like late 40s through the 60s. Um, some mm-hmm. of the films he was in were like Roman Holiday, To Kill a Mockingbird, and the original Cape Fear. Wow. Okay. They considered Dick Van Dyke and Charleston, Charlton Heston for this role. Oh, my God. I could actually, to... I could see Dick Van Dyke. You could see Dick Van Dyke doing this? He's a versatile dude. Oh, I've only seen him in his show. I didn't know he could like pull off drama. Right. Well, it's but, interesting too, because so much of, I mean, Gregory Peck wasn't a horror star, but so many movies, even satanic movies in this time period had big horror actors from like 40s and 50s and 60s appearing mm-hmm. in more mature roles like... um Oh, God, why am I blanking on his name? He's like... Vincent Price? Horror, horror royalty. There you go. Vincent Price in 1968. Or, I mean, in... Uh, I think it was 71 in, in uh, Wishfinder General. No, wait. Wishfinder General was 68. And then... Um, God, my brain just stopped. <laughs> <laughs> the Wicker Man was in 1973, and that had... Um, fuck me. Why Chris, is my Chris, brain not working? Chris something? Christopher Lee. Oh, okay, yeah. Right. As a villain in that, both playing like more ominous, nuanced roles when they played kind of like schlocky, mustache twirling villains in, in their prior roles. I don't oh, sure. think, you know, to compare their careers to Gregory Peck's isn't quite appropriate, but um, right. Yeah, just a weird parallel with like kind of aging stars. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Uh, yeah, let's see. Lee Remick, who was his Gregory Peck's co star in this was an Academy Award-nominated actress and a Tony Award nomination for the play Wait Until Dark that was adapted a year later. We actually did that as a test episode. Oh, Wait Until... Oh, is that the one where someone... That was um, the one with Audrey Hepburn. Yeah, oh, that was great. So that that used to be a play first? Yeah, yeah, and Lee Remick played played Audrey Hepburn's role in the play and and was nominated for a Tony for it, for Best Actress. Good for her. Right? Yeah, um, yeah. It's it's a well regarded movie. I feel like it's uh, on some like best horror movie of all times lists. Um, mm-hmm. It's got an eighty six percent critic score on Rotten Tomatoes, eighty percent users. It's on the AFI one hundred years one hundred thrills list. It was on Bravo's one hundred scariest movie moments list for a scene we'll talk about when we walk through the plot. So yeah, it's it's a well regarded movie, and it spawned. An entire franchise, which I'm not sure if I was totally aware of. Yeah, so there's this one, uh, what, there's like part two and three as well? Yeah, Damien, Omen 2 was in 1978. Omen 3, The Final Conflict, which is the worst name, uh, yeah. was in 1981. And then they made a fourth one, which was made for TV, mm. Omen 4, The Awakening, in 1991. Okay, and then they started the reboot, um, and uh, it was only one in that series or did they make a sequel there as well just one so i think i think it's safe to call that a remake in 2006 okay oh yeah the remake okay and then a tv series called damien in 2016 that was only on for one season ah interesting okay um and a prequel in development oh interesting uh do you know the first omen there's really not much out there on it it's kind of one of those things where it's like i believe it when i see it Mm, okay Cool. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, okay. uh, it's interesting because uh, I, I think they make a big deal about this being a movie about like the end of times, and uh, were there not many movies before about the end of times? Hmm, that's a good question. I mean, Rosemary's Baby, not yeah, Rosemary's Baby, similar. Um, there's apocalyptic movies for sure. There were, but right? like, what's that? There were. Uh, they, they, they definitely had apocalyptic movies, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, Night of the Living Dead, even uh, nineteen sixty-eight. Um, yeah, was, yeah. Dawn of the Dead would be two years later, but there's stuff like Last Man on Earth and Marathon Man. Okay, okay, yeah, th- yeah. You have th- those kind of things. See, I was I was yeah. wondering what this like brought that was like new to the table that got everyone all riled up. But yeah, it definitely had an impact and a and a legacy. Yeah, and I think it's uh, it's explicit tie to biblical type stuff was um, I'm sure something that stood out to viewers, even though some of the biblical stuff was exaggerated or incorrect yeah. in the movie. Yeah, just like fictionalized. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, and actually, the dude who told the producer about this book is listed as a religious consultant on the movie. Oh. <laughs> religious consultant to the producers is his credit. His name was Robert Munger. Oh, that's hilarious. But uh, yeah, he, he must not have been paying very close attention to yeah. to the Bible or just didn't care. And they just, I think they just, David Seltzer took some liberties to make it a stronger script. Yeah. And they're just like, good enough. <laughs> I think right, right. Robert Munger's yeah. like, well, I'll get my name in the credits. That's all yeah, I need. Exactly, that works. Uh, yeah, I mean, they, they, it sounds like so. Like uh, the, the quotes that they give in the movie, which I know, like, I don't think are directly from the Bible, but they they sound pretty convincing. Right? Yeah, they do. I mean, for all anybody knows, that's that's in the Bible. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm gonna for people just... who haven't read the Book of Revelation word for word and remember all of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's kind of commingled with truth, truth and fiction commingled together. Sure, sure. I'm going to start uh, doing so that on a daily basis, just pretend like I'm quoting the Bible. I, you're sure? I mean, it's in the I was Bible. I question that. Yeah. Um, it's in the Bible. Speaking of this movie's uh, well renownedness, Jerry Goldsmith did the score and he won the Oscar for Best Original Score. Yeah. Uh, that was the only Oscar he ever won. Oh, wow. Yeah, this score uh, kind of like hits you right off the bat, doesn't it? It really does. I mean, there's a lot of Latin chanting, which is always creepy to me. Yeah, those um, works. There's also just like big sweeping cinematic score type stuff. It, it's a great score. It is. It is powerful score. Really cool to yeah. see uh, that that go on and win a Grammy. Or you say an For Oscar? Sure. An Oscar, yeah. An Oscar, yeah. Uh, anything else? Any other background about this movie before I hit the Ohio connection? Uh, no, I think you had everything I had. Okay. As always, our friend Alex, who owns the Jukebox Bar and Restaurant, connects every movie we watch to our home state of Ohio for us. And Alex says, The Omen is a supernatural horror film written by David Seltzer about a young child, replaced at birth, who turns out to be the Antichrist. Seltzer is a longtime screenwriter, producer, and director whose credits include films Lucas, Bird on a Wire, My Giant, and the comedy drama film Punchline starring Tom Hanks. Before becoming a film star, Tom Hanks honed his acting skills as a student of the theater. Through this, he met Vincent Dowling, head of the Great Lakes Theater Festival, where he became an intern. His internship stretched into a three-year experience that covered most aspects of theater production, including lighting, set design, and stage management, prompting him to drop out of college. The Great Lakes Theater Festival, now known as the Great Lakes Theater, 
is a professional classic theater company located in Cleveland, Ohio. Oh, Tom Hanks was an intern there? Yeah, I guess so. Ah, that's really cool. That's yeah, awesome. that's really, really great fun fact. Thanks yeah. for digging that up, Alex. Great one. All right, man. Well, are you ready to walk through the plot, spoil some stuff, and uh, review the movie? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Before we do that, uh, we went on a hike today, and uh, I, I gotta—I feel like I better check my kid's head for ticks before he goes to bed. You mind if I go do that and come right oh, back? Boy, yeah, sure. Go for it. Uh, all right. Be right back. All right. Okay, buddy. Uh, I got some good news and bad news. Okay, what's the good news? Good news, no ticks. Bad news, found a 666 on his scalp. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> what are you doing after this episode? <laughs> yeah, I gotta, yeah. gotta go uh, ask around for some daggers. Yeah. <laughs> I know a guy. <laughs> you got a, dag- a religious dagger guy? Yeah, you always gotta have one of those. Everyone yeah. even needs them. Right. Lives in some ruins somewhere. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, okay. This film begins with wealthy diplomat Robert Thorne and his wife Kathy at a hospital giving birth to their first child. The hospital chaplain informs Robert that the baby has died, but suggests that he swap the baby with another whose mother just died during childbirth. He says to Robert, it would be a blessing to your wife and the child. So Robert takes him up on the offer and brings the baby to his wife, Kathy, without telling her that their biological child has actually died. And this is someone else's baby. This is all happening at, on June 6th at 6 a.m., by the way. Did you find this, like, setting interesting? Like, you're giving birth uh, at a church? Or, like, why Why is there a priest and a nun hanging out here? I think it was, like, the hospital, pre- like, the chaplain, I think, is, like, the priest on staff at the hospital for probably like last rites and stuff like that. Oh, okay. So, it's not so like I think a, there was like a chapel in yeah. the hospital. I would guess that's not uncommon for some oh, okay. hospitals. He's, I thought he was more like an administrator, but yeah, I, I guess that makes more sense. Yeah, um, that was my it, impression at least. Yeah. And then I had a note, like it's strange that the, that um, a priest uh, would be pushing someone to like commit like a lie like that, but I guess that kind of resolves itself later, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, So five years later, after seeing a montage of the happy moments shared by the young family for the past five years, they're celebrating Damien's fifth birthday. Uh, Damien's nanny, it's this giant party they're having outside on their property of their very nice home. They're a wealthy family, and he's a political figure, so some press is there as well. His nanny encounters a Rottweiler on the property and seems momentarily hypnotized by it. She then interrupts the party by shouting from the roof, Look up here, Damien, it's all for you! And proceeds to hang herself by jumping off the roof with a rope tied to her neck that swings her into a window below. Her lifeless corpse shatters the window while young children, their parents, and other partygoers look on completely horrified and a press photographer named Keith Jennings who will appear later in the film, um, is notably at the party and takes photos of what has unfolded. This is the moment on Bravo's 100 Scariest Moments list, and I think it's probably one of the most iconic scenes in horror. Uh, Mm. What were your thoughts on it, Ashvin? 
Yeah, I, I thought it hits pretty well. It's like very like disturbing, and uh, you have like this whole party vibe going. So like everything's like all uh, up and running, and you just see people like kind of starting to look, and the way it like kind of crashes the tone and just like comes out of nowhere. Uh, I thought it was like really effective and well done. What did you think? Yeah, right. It's just like a fun birthday party, and something goes horribly wrong. Yeah, um, yeah. Had you had this scene? Like, had you seen this scene? I, f- I feel like I, I knew about it. Yeah, I, f- I feel like in, uh, culturally, like yeah, so, somehow we all kind of like know about like these scenes, right? Um, and that like it's all for you, Damien. That line and stuff. Uh, so right. I, I knew it was coming, but still, like it, it caught me by surprise, like how well it was done. It is well executed. It hits hard, and she's uh, the actress. Really nails it too. Yeah, the the nanny. Yeah, yeah. I should have gotten her name. Oh uh, yeah, she, yeah. She does a great job. Uh, uh, but yeah, so- really well played. Yeah, agreed. Um, so days later, in the chaos that comes in the wake of their nanny's death, uh, a new nanny shows up at the Thorns' home. There's some confusion about who actually hired her because neither Robert nor Kathy seems to have done so. Uh, but the new nanny, Mrs. Blaylock, simply says that the agency sent her and Robert and Kathy are just at a hectic moment in life, so they're just happy to get the nanny situation resolved quickly. So they hire her without asking too many questions. And right off the bat, Mrs. Blaylock appears ominous. Not only does she appear out of nowhere, and we we don't know what her origin is or who hired her, but she's played with, like, subtly creepy aplomb by uh, an actress named Billy Whitelaw. Mm-hmm. And she and Damien seem to share a secret bond. She says things to him like, Have no fear, little one. I'm here to protect thee. And anytime someone says thee, <laughs> you should be creeped out. <laughs> That's just a rule of thumb. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, And yeah, like you get moments where Damien shares like an eerie smile with her and the the score plays ominously in the background. Hmm. Um, So we know something's up with this nanny. Yep. Strange things start to happen with Damien uh, that start to get the family concerned, especially his mother, Kathy. There's an episode where Mrs. Blaylock tries to keep Damien home from a wedding, even though Kathy has instructed her to have him dressed and ready. Uh, But when the family ultimately goes to the church, Damien freaks out in the car at the mere sight of the church, and they have to skip the wedding. And Asha, I, I don't, I think Mrs. Blaylock is an unsettling character, not simply just because of the way she's written and the way she's performed by Billy Mm -hmm. Whitelaw, but isn't it just like, especially maybe this applies to me the most as like someone having a kid and having caretakers in our home. It's like unsettling to have someone in your house who's just doing whatever she wants, presumably. Oh yeah, totally. She seems to like regularly disobey them, like not getting them ready for the wedding and then she just has this Rottweiler in the house and says like, "Oh, it's a it's a guard dog." Yeah, um, I know. That's it's kind uh, of mind boggling that they wouldn't fire her. Yeah, it's unsettling when like yeah, you, you feel like someone there who's like supposed to be working for you and uh, yeah, you know you're, you're paying them to do X, but uh, they're suddenly kind of like getting out of hand a bit and you can't like do anything about it. And there's this weird like it's almost like a power play like or leverage they have over you because. Damien, Damien is fond of her and like mm-hmm. his last nanny killed herself. So I guess I can understand it. Like, what are you going to do? Like get another nanny and like, they're both, they both seem so busy. Like yeah. something was oddly relatable about this to me. Like, luckily we've been blessed for the most part with pretty good, uh, like nannies and babysitters and stuff. But 
That's good. <laughs> yeah. I, I yeah, kind of got it. I get it. Yeah. Did you think we got enough of uh, the Damien and Nanny together and like their bond? I, I don't f- recall like too many scenes of like how close knit they were. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it was implied. I, I think it. I think we got the right amount of scenes because I think this movie's pacing is really good. Okay. Yeah. You wished for more, though, eh? Um, I wonder if I. I mean, by not showing the nanny too much and like just having like these interactions between her and the parents, uh, I thought it was effective. So, like, yeah, it, you know, it was the whole power play. It was how she was kind of manipulating them, and you could tell like she had like a, a sinister agenda in the background. But yeah. uh, something at the end that yeah I want to hit on is um, yeah Damien's relationship with her. But we, we okay. can circle back to that. All right, cool. We'll circle back. Uh, so another occurrence that is cause for alarm is when Kathy takes Damien to a drive-through zoo and the animals freak out at his presence. The giraffes run away and the baboons straight up attack the car. Uh, what did you think of this baboon attack scene? It was actually pretty okay. Like it was, it was well done. Like it didn't feel like very. Uh, effect heavy or anything uh it felt like pretty authentic what what did you think yeah i i think like this scene particularly is a commentary on all the technical elements and the direction of this movie because this could have easily been so stupid right yeah <laughs> like in recounting it like a bunch of baboons jump on the car and they can't get in because they're in a car but kathy and damien are freaked out and it it just really works. I mean, I guess yeah. in real life, if primates climbed on your car and were angry, it would pretty be pretty scary. But to pull it off in a movie, I think, is a testament to the film. Yeah, it worked. I, how do they do that? Where do they, where uh, they get these angry baboons? Yeah, good, good question, man. What what makes a baboon so angry? I know. <laughs> yeah, these ones are pissed. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, it worked, I thought. And like you, you felt like the tension there and... It really felt for like the the mom and the kid. Yeah, agreed. Um, and so, in the midst of all these strange occurrences, Kathy is getting more and more concerned about Damien. Uh, meanwhile, a priest approaches Robert and warns him that his son Damien is the son of Satan, that his wife Kathy is pregnant, and that Damien will kill the unborn child and then kill Robert and Kathy. Uh, this, pri- this priest is hilarious. He doesn't like open with that. He like opens with like just a bunch of, like verses. It's like no one knows what he's talking about for a while. Yeah, uh, right? Like, get to the cha- cut to the chase, man. Yeah, like know your audience, you know? <laughs> They're just like sit around quoting a Bible if you're trying to warn <laughs> someone about something. Uh, yeah, funny guy. Um, This is a bit of a tangent. But we discussed... I feel like we've discussed this on the podcast before, or if we haven't, we discussed it in Don't Look Now, which we talked about before we started the podcast how in films from the 70s and and perhaps before that the sound design of really footsteps? F- yes yeah. did you notice I, that i was thinking you when i hear them when we're watching 70s songs <laughs> yeah it's is it just like there's so many was it like what floors were made out of or were just ceilings really high and so like footsteps echoed so much what was going on back then I don't know. And gang, what we're talking about, Ashton and I have joked in the past about how like in 70s movies and possibly earlier, a man wearing dress shoes, like he's walking and his footsteps are loud in the mix. Like the sound is prominent. (laughs) Yes. And well, and then to your, your last question, Ashwin, this is outside. 
they're outside near some trees uh-huh. next to a body of water and some <laughs> road noise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yet still the most prominent sound in the mix, not the water splashing against the shore, not yeah. the wind in the leaves, not the cars passing by, the birds chirping, but shoes <laughs> on cement in a wide open echoless space. Yeah. It's yeah. so strange. Yeah. 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 I know. Like that was a, uh, yeah, that's a weird thing in the seventies. I, I don't know why they did that. Yeah, well, I would love to like learn why why that. Is. If anyone knows why that is, mm-hmm. let us know. Yeah, this got to be an amazing reason. Yeah, I mean, it sounded like he was walking through an empty church and he's in a park right. in a public place. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. So yeah, after after the shoe noise, the priest gives him the ominous warning. He tells Robert they'll see each other in hell. And he says, and there we will share our sentence. And did you hear the like echo under his voice, like the other voice? Oh, I didn't. There's another voice that can be faintly heard beneath the priest in like the standard demonic tone. And the priest hears it and looks around suspiciously. Wow. When he says the word sentence? And when he says there we will share out our sentence, that whole that whole sentence, no yeah. pun intended, is is echoed. Oh, okay, okay. Or has uh, a voice under underneath it. Yeah, and I remember him getting spooked by like the change in the weather. But yeah, nothing. yeah, I thought he. Was, I read that as him being spooked by the voice, but maybe a little bit of both because the weather does change too. It gets windier. Yeah. And uh, on his walk home, that wind breaks the spire off of the top of a tall building, and that spire falls on him and impales him. And did you watch this in four K, Ashwin? Um, I don't think so. No, the I don't think of, I did. Okay, I think Apple had it to rent in 4K. And in 4K, man, you can really tell the priest is like just standing in front of a spire. Oh, <laughs> that's really? like meant to look like it's piercing his body. It, yeah, it kind of takes some of the uh, effect out of it. Oh, man. Okay. Damn. But so the priest prophecy ends up coming to fruition when Robert learns that his wife is pregnant. And she d- doesn't want to have another child, she tells him, uh, after everything that's been going on with Damien. And she just has a gut feeling that something is wrong. She says she wants an abortion, but Robert is adamant that he doesn't want this. Um, and I couldn't help but thinking, abortion really isn't something that's talked about, even in movies, like even today, all that much. And I was thinking Roe v. Wade was just three years earlier than this movie in 1973, um, and then Black Christmas talked about abortion the year after that in 1974. Oh, yeah, so right. I was just like wondering more about like the history of abortion and how it's handled in, in mainstream films. Or if yeah. it is mentioned much at all. Yeah, and in uh, this is taking place in the UK too, right? Yeah. At the moment. Yep. But yeah, you're right, in Hollywood, like uh, them bringing this topic up, uh, interesting for that time. You know what? No, it's not the UK. It's... Um, Huh. Wait, maybe it is the UK. Um, yeah, for some reason I thought they were in like London or something. Uh, yeah, you might be right. I was going to say this takes place in DC, but I'm also reading The Exorcist, and that takes place in DC, so I think I'm confused. Mm, okay. Um, so the priest's prophecy comes to fruition yet again when Damien aggressively rides his tricycle on an upstairs balcony, knocking his mother off the edge of the balcony, which puts her in the hospital where we find out she has lost the baby and what did you think of the execution of that that tricycle scene where she gets knocked off the balcony 
It was good. It kind of reminded me of The Shining a bit, like he's just riding around. Uh, and it does. I I don't know. Uh, I don't. I didn't think it felt like too aggressive. I I thought it was just like, hey, I'm I'm a kid. I'm riding a tricycle around, and I, I ran into this thing. Um, so <laughs> yeah, he, he didn't seem like too alarmed or like like he was angry or anything. Um, no, so, yeah. but Mrs. Blaylock sure seemed like she was up to something, right? Given yeah, all her weird but, smirks, and she like mischievously mischievously opens the door oh, to his bedroom to let him out into that hallway. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah. She's definitely got something going on there. Yeah. Um, but I, I thought that was, was a nice like suspense build because uh, she's like on her toes, like trying to put like hang something up, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I gotta believe that's the second most famous kid on a tricycle scene in horror after The Shining. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good tricycle. Uh, what'd you think of the scene? You like it? You know, I liked the buildup, but I thought her fall was not executed that well. Uh, it's interesting because, uh, what do they, they first show like, uh, is it like a fishbowl crashing? Yeah, maybe like maybe that's the first thing that falls or she knocks it over and then they like show her on the ground kind of, you know, mm-hmm. kind of in a strange position. Um, there's not anything wrong with it, but it's just like, Felt like a big moment that could have been done a little bit better, but I can't say why. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I don't know that I have any real tangible criticism. But yeah, I mean, the build up I think, was cool. I think they left like her like hitting the ground like off screen, right? Purposefully. Yeah. Yeah, they did. Yeah. Right. Um, so after all this goes down, Robert is approached by the photographer that I mentioned earlier, who was present at Damien's birthday party. And the photographer shows him that there are ominous lines in photos of the nanny, the original nanny who killed herself, and the priest that was killed by the spire that are premonitions of their eventual deaths. Uh, he also mentions that an autopsy photo of the priest revealed a 666 on his thigh. Uh, and there's an even bigger moment in the movie coming after this when the photographer tells Robert that he's got stake in the game too, And he shows Robert a photo of himself, the photographer, that is, with a line through his neck, meaning his death is being foretold as well. And here's where the movie kind of shifts into a bit of like an investigative story, right? Yeah. So the the photographer and Robert start to dig more into these prophecies and, and how the apocalypse is foretold in the book of Revelation. They learn that Satan's son will rise from the eternal sea, which can be interpreted as the world of politics. And they go to the hospital where Damien was born to see if they can find out more about Damien's mother. They're eventually pointed towards the mother's grave and the grave of what is supposedly her child, uh, but due to the baby swap is actually Robert's child that died shortly after birth. They dig up both of the graves to determine what Damien's mother, or to determine that Damien's mother was a jackal, which is a wild dog, for those of you who don't know what a jackal is. And they find out that Robert's biological son, when they dig up his body, uh, you know, he supposedly died during birth, but he actually has a giant fracture in his skull, which leads Robert to deduce that his baby was murdered just simply so that the hospital chaplain could swipe, could swap Damien into his family. So, like, Damien was strategically inserted into Robert's family by the hospital chaplain. This, uh... These uh, skeletons were kind of comical, weren't they? Oh, good question. I, I didn't... I mean, they're just like, they, they look like x-rays, basically. They were like almost like two-dimensional. And like you could see like really perfectly, okay, here's the baby's head with this with the hole in it. 
and then like here's the jackal like outline and stuff. It's just it's like you you know when, when you, I assume when you dig up a body, it's a little messier than that. Yeah, yeah, you might be right, but uh, they were five years old, so a lot had probably decayed. Mm, okay. Yeah, it just seemed really clean. Yeah, it is pretty clean. Um, we'll How have to does... dig one up sometime and see. Yeah, I know. We'll find out soon. Um, a jackal. So, so the, the the theory here is that the jackal, a jackal pushed out uh, a human child. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's wild. And I can't remember if that was specifically part of the prophecy or not, but that was supposed to be like a big reveal, you know? Like, his mother's a jackal. I, I think the yeah. priest yelled that at some point. <laughs> yeah, he says jack, and then he gets like pulled away, I think. And I thought oh, he was gonna say, right, right. I yeah. thought he was going to say his mother was a jackass. <laughs> was, was a jackal. Just the worst. His yeah. mother was the worst. <laughs> she never tipped. Always cut people <laughs> off. <laughs> uh... So after discovering all this, it is more clear to Robert than ever that something is terribly wrong with Damien and that there's at least some truth to the prophecy. And since the priest foretold that Damien would kill Kathy, Robert phones Kathy to tell her to get out of there as fast as she can, like leave the city and leave Damien with the nanny. Shortly after this, the nanny visits Kathy, Mrs. Blaylock visits Kathy in the hospital and throws Kathy out the hospital window to her death. That was rough. Robert Two, yeah. two falls in one movie. Right? Yeah. She's yeah. she's gone through a lot of falls. Yeah. Didn't get a break. Yeah. Big falls are kind of the theme of the last two episodes. <laughs> so Robert learns of Kathy's death via a phone call and tells his photographer buddy, Kathy is dead. I want Damien to die too. Um, so let's see. They go find an antichrist expert who tells Robert to look for three sixes under Damien's hair. That's the proof that he's the son of Satan, and if that's there, he's got to kill him with these special seven daggers that he gives Robert, and he says to kill Damien on uh, the altar, the altar of God, so a church's altar. And uh, before Robert and the photographer head back, they there's this freak accident that results in the photographer being decapitated by a pane of glass that falls off the back of a truck. <laughs> that was wild. <laughs> <laughs> a pretty wild scene, right? Yeah. Yeah, kind of comes I, out of nowhere, but uh, I liked yeah, it. You liked it, yeah. Uh, what I, did you think? I, I'm not sure what purpose it served. Um, it, yeah, it, it just seemed like kind of unnecessary, but I think it's what there for like the, the the gore, the scare, I guess. I think so, and to like probably build some tension that you know it things are prophesized in these photos, and Kathy's death was prophesized, so was Robert. So I think mm. it's just. Another way to keep us saying, like, okay, like, think death is coming for you too, Robert. Yeah, that's three for um, three. Yeah. Yep. So Robert eventually gets back home. It's nighttime. He sneaks into the house. This is the first time he's been home since Kathy's death. He plans to check Damien's scout for the 666 while Damien's asleep. And sure enough, it is there. Uh, and this is, a, I thought this scene was pretty well done because he enters the house. There's this terrifying part of the score that's playing featuring the Latin singing that always freaks me out. Yeah. He has to kind of thwart the guard dog. He has to not wake up Damien. He has to not wake up Mrs. Blaylock. Um, so it's pretty tense, but Mrs. Blaylock does wake up. She attacks him. They get into a big fight and he eventually stabs her to death. He then grabs Damien, brushes him out the door to take him to a church and murder him. But his erratic driving causes the police to tail him to the church 
And he's there on the altar. He's got Damien. He raises the knife to stab him, and the police shoot him dead before he can do so. The film ends with a scene of Kathy and Robert's joint funeral, during which Damien looks at the screen and smiles, breaking the fourth wall. Oh, did, boy. What did you think of that fourth wall I lo- break? I like that, man. I, th- I thought it was hilarious because, uh, yeah, he hadn't done that the whole movie. And uh, <laughs> that, that like kind of not wink at the end, I thought was pretty good. What, what did you think? You Over know, it strangely works. It's so funny because it's like not the type of movie to break the fourth wall, but yeah, I I think this like goes to the culture that we talked about at this point in history in the seventies. That like it's kind of looking at the audience to like let you know, like yeah, the devil is here among us now, and like there's nothing you can do about it. Like yeah. back to what uh, the producer's buddy told him like, what if there, there really is the devil's son out there right now? Like, right. It's almost like that's what Damien's doing with that wink to yeah. an audience who, uh, theoretically might, might be fearful of this kind of thing. Right. Right. And now he's been adopted by the president and the first lady, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. You're right. I forgot about that. So risen up in rank, risen up. Pretty big deal. He's in a position of power. Yeah. Right. what do you think of the movie? Uh, I really enjoyed it. I, I, th- I thought it was really well done and like a pretty complex story. Uh, and it, it brought together like a lot of really interesting themes, uh, the, the, the role of religion, uh, government and, and like the whole thing of like seas of power. I think uh, interesting commentary on parenting and like some of that depression that might hit like a like a, like a mother after giving a child like the postpartum depression or um, the idea of like trying to raise a child in a foreign country. Um so I, I I thought it worked on a lot of different levels. Uh, the the role of the media in in calling out what was happening here, um, it was was really interesting. So I, I thought it had a lot to say in like bringing together like a lot of elements of the time into kind of like a cool, scary, uh, disturbing story. So I I enjoyed it. What what did you think? Yeah, I agree. I think the two things I appreciated about it the most were the score. I mean, the Jerry Goldsmith score is just awesome and I think it really in a way is just kind of like the backbone of the movie like it really keeps things moving it keeps the scary moments scary it adds emotion to the the family moments um which I think were really needed because one of my chief complaints is I don't really like Gregory Peck in this role um, is like his his character or like his acting his I'm tempted to say it's his acting, but I just, even like his casting and I can't, I'm going to be open with my ignorance. Like, I don't even know if I've seen Gregory Peck in anything else. Like I'm not Mm -hmm. familiar with him as an actor. I just know he's a big name. Yeah. Um, I think he's very well cast as a politician. I don't know how well cast he is. as like a husband and father going through some trauma. Yeah. it just didn't always work to me, but how did you feel about it? You know, that's one thing uh, I had on the weakness here is, uh, but I, I wonder if it's like the truth, because you're talking about father figures in the 70s. He's obviously like a high level uh, politician. So yeah, his he's like barely there. It's all on his wife. Um, he like says like kind of cringeworthy lines like, oh, you're too sexy for the White House or something. Um, so I, I feel like he was like a man of like that time representing like that kind of father who's like removed from his family from his child and upbringing and is just kind of like focused on like being like a public personality or something or a professional or whatever so uh shitty character but i, I thought there was some truth to it 
uh, were those your gripes, like who who he was or what he was portraying there? Yeah, I guess I didn't really think too much about how accurate that would be to his political position and the perhaps a time period too, where there wasn't as much emphasis on like uh, being like an open and sensitive father. So yeah, oh, sure. Yeah. I, yeah, I think your counter argument works there. Um, yeah, that's what, that's what I thought it might be a commentary on, either purposefully or not purposefully. Like maybe during the times of like, oh yeah, this is how dads are, or this is how this character would be. But like, yeah, looking back, it kind of feels like that's a, a like yeah, a, a memorabilia of that era. Right. Sure. Yeah. Understandable. Um, I can't remember finish if I finished what I was saying or not, but I thought like the two things I loved most about the movie were the score, number one, and then number two. I thought the pacing was done really well. Like mm-hmm. it felt like something pretty meaningful was happening every five to ten minutes. Like more like every five minutes in this movie. Yeah. Um. So it really kept moving forward, and I think one beef uh, I had with it, largely perhaps based on Gregory Peck and perhaps Robert Dorn as a character, was that as much as I were as my as much as I was admiring the movie and appreciating the movie. About halfway through, I just noticed I wasn't really having that much affection for it. Like, it felt a bit rigid and formal to me somehow. Mm, yeah. But once the photographer, like, really became a crucial part of the movie and him and Robert, like, buddied up on their little mission, yeah, I started to enjoy the film even more. Um, like, oh. I liked the investigative elements and the way the plot unfolds. Yeah. And I became pretty. I think I was more attached to the to the photographer than I was to any other character in the movie for some reason. Oh sure, yeah, yeah. I liked his character a lot. Uh, he seemed like more relatable than anyone else. Just like the standard earth guy is like trying to keep keep his head on. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I think that might be again maybe perhaps the character the way the characters were written too. Like they're wealthy political family they're they're not as easy to relate to as yeah. say this photographer dude a little bit out of touch right um, speaking of like relatability mm-hmm. i know they say in screenwriting that a relatable flaw can make a character more endearing to an audience do you think that's what they were going for with the photographer's haircut <laughs> i liked his haircut you didn't like it oh man i thought it was pretty bad oh i thought he had a cool look about him Damn. all right Interesting. All right, so fedoras out this yeah. haircut. <laughs> I'll take and back faces, and check that out. Yeah, yeah, unrecognizable. You got yeah. something, something going on with heads. <laughs> How they're decorated, the faces yeah. upon them. Yeah, I, I just never look <laughs> look at faces or anything. Yeah, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, pacing. It's so interesting because the movie does take like really like tonal shifts. Uh, there where like he he's going on like those adventures to like mission like on like basically you have someone who's told you what's going on like hey your son's the antichrist but like still he spends like a week like going to different countries and different parts of Italy to kind of prove this out which felt kind of like a, a hassle in a way um, you, you think he needed to go to all those places? Yeah, I mean, I think that. Yeah, it's a hard thing to buy. If someone walked up to you and told you someone close to you was the spawn of Satan, would you just be like, okay, where are the knives? Yeah. <laughs> are there a certain nice. number of knives? Or do I just go yeah. kill them now? Yeah, yeah. I feel like I'd, I'd, I'd take, it, uh, take it at their word, especially if it's a priest who opens yeah, with the right? lines the, from the Bible, sh- that uh, lines he says are from the Bible. 
<laughs> if, if someone approaches you smoking a cigar and speaking lines from the Bible, you're just yeah. going to buy into anything they say. Exactly. <laughs> Souls. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I kind of get it. I get Robert's journey. I, I, it is interesting, the tonal shift, too. It goes from, like, family drama to just, like, almost like buddy cop movie or something. Yeah. Yeah, right. Right. Uh, yeah, but I liked it. I liked that shift actually. Yeah, yeah, it was interesting. I, I, I liked when they swung back and you had that the whole, uh, t- yeah, intercounter encounter with the nanny. I feel like the nanny was like one of the scarier parts of this film. Like her acting, um, almost like every interaction with her is like so tense. She good. was, yeah, she was great. She was very ominous. But then I also thought Harvey Stevens, the little kid who played Damien, was like perfect. He did a pretty good job, right? Yeah, it was like good acting, but then also just like his look and his smiles, just a naturally creepy kid. Like he didn't even seem to have to try. Not like if you ran into this kid on the street, you wouldn't be like, oh, that fucker's creepy. (laughs) Yeah, right. But in the context of the movie, it's just like an effortless creepiness, which I feel like is even more easy to appreciate now now that we've got like decades of creepy kid movies where with bad acting kids or kids that are like really going overboard or directed to do way too much and yeah it was just really subtle but really effective here yeah it is really interesting the kids in the 70s and 80s 60s like were like better actors than the ones today where they go overboard yeah uh, right yeah that's a feat Um, yeah give me your uh, danny torrance's and your damien's any day yeah, exactly. I'll take that quality of kid. Uh, one, so so one thing uh, on the topic of this kid, how convinced are you that he was the Antichrist? Pretty convinced, man. Do you have any other explanations? Yeah, I I'm like at forty percent. I'm not, I'm not convinced, man. Like if you watch the events of this movie, there's like very little proof that he's the Antichrist, except a birthmark, which. I mean, you know, it was dark, it was under his scalp, and birthmarks can be whatever. Like, there wasn't any substantial evidence he was killing or doing anything to anyone, was there? Well, everybody around him died. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Dogs were randomly, one evil dog was drawn to him while every other creature was repelled by him. Yeah. There's a lot of evidence. Also, you just <laughs> said you should just take the priest's word for it. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Well, you either do that, right? Like you either trust the guy, or uh, or but but like in, in retrospect, like watching the film, watching every death, I I think there's a story here about like uh, parents uh, having a child. Uh, you can see like the mother's like kind of distance from him. Um, she she's getting the nanny right to help, and uh, she's getting frustrated with him. Uh, she's she wants to see a doctor for her mental health. Um, this father who's like pretty removed from his son's life and is like barely home. Um, he's like trying to be supportive for his wife, but not so much. So she's kind of like battling this on her own and I don't know if she's getting the help that she needs. So yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, clearly the nanny's a, b- a bad person and a bad influence there, but, um, I, I'm, I'm kind of on Damien's side. I, I don't think he was, I, I think this is like a scary movie if you think about it as these parents who become convinced that their kid is the Antichrist and try to murder their child. That's like the a pretty scary story to me. That could be a really cool like remake of The Omen. Like it's all just in their heads. Actually, well, I'm sure there probably are movies like that. Well, I, I think Donner and his approach would try to keep it like open-minded like that or like, like open to interpretation. Like was it 
are like because yeah most of this movie I, I was actually scared for damien especially like in that last sequence um like uh you didn't feel that at all like uh that maybe they're like two sides here i didn't but yeah i do remember reading that i can't remember if it was david seltzer who wanted things to be more ambiguous and then richard donner was like no it needs to be clear what's happening no i, th- I think um, seltzer was the one who wanted it to be very clear and donner okay, like gotcha. wanted it to be ambiguous and i, I gotcha. think the more ambiguous angle works because then you feel like the fear that the child might be fearing when their parents like trying to kill them yeah yeah it would be a different movie i i want to see i want to see both movies are you sure it'd be different? I think it could be this exact same movie because he's never like really malicious on his own in this film, unless you're counting that like last wink at the end. Are are you counting the last wink at the end? Uh yeah, I count that last wink at the end and now <laughs> on all the mysterious smiles. But yeah, yeah. So what here? I, I found that note. So what I read was Donner. Yeah, you're right. The director Richard Donner did want the film to be ambitious, ambiguous, and the writer was against that. But in the end, Harvey Bernard. The producer sided with Seltzer, the writer. So that's kind of the way they went was mm. spelling it out, even if you don't think they they spelled it out. Yeah. Was it like clearly spelled out? Like, do you what would you point I mean, to in this movie that was hard evidence? Any animals like aren't proof. Like you can't be like, yeah, these baboons didn't like my kid. So he's got to be the devil. Yeah, I mean, it was multiple small things adding up like his his mother's was a dog. His, the <laughs> it's clear his original son was murdered so what was the motivation for someone to murder his baby and then insert this kid into his family um, those, those could have been any random graves though right how did the prophecy come to fruition then that like Damien would kill the unborn child and kill his mom yeah but did he kill the unborn child and his mom or was he just riding his bike and having a good time I mean, it's a pretty big coincidence. And then Mrs. Blaylock killing the mom, like... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's she's p- clearly being targeted. Yeah, she, yeah, I, I, I'm having trouble defending uh, Miss Blaylock on this one. The 666, yeah, yeah I mean, there, you could make a movie like that, but... Yeah. I, I think this movie spelled it out enough. You think so? Okay. Uh, maybe I'm at like 60% now that... Uh, I think, though, I mean... Is- if we're both airing, you know, if I air my way, I've accidentally just killed my kid for no reason. And if you air your way, no harm, no foul. End of the world. No big deal. <laughs> exactly. End of the world. Not a big deal. <laughs> at, least, at least the kid gets a good, decent life. Exactly. Um, yeah. So let's see. Zero to five baboons on your car. Uh, I give this one four baboons on the car. I thought it was a really original story. Great score. Uh, yeah, pretty fun pacing. And I like the somewhat ambiguous nature of it, even though maybe it wasn't as ambiguous. But uh, pretty pretty good and creepy. I had a good time. What about you? Yeah, I'm right there with you. I give it a four. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think it's technically a very like well-made movie. And I think some of the beefs I have with like not being engaged or attached to some of the characters really kind of was like, lifted up and I was distracted from that by the technical elements like the photography, the score, editing and production design. Actually, it's one of those movies where some of the technical stuff is done so well that it seems kind of effortless and it's hard to actually notice that it's done well because it's not like they're not going out of their way to make it flashy. It's just executed well. Yeah, and I think that Uh, makes it kind of timeless, doesn't it? Like it doesn't feel like it's like old effects or anything. 
I agree. It does make it a bit timeless. This is also like a big movie, it seems. Like many locations, some of them are pretty unique. Um, you know, especially mm-hmm. like the investigation, like second half of the movie, it just almost feels like an action adventure movie in some ways. Yeah, right, right. And it's, and like it's, I feel like it's just so rare that you see horror combined with like politics. So I, I, I love that angle of it. And I, I think there's like a really cool intersection there um, about like, uh, um, yeah, I guess like the, the idea of like the end of the world and war and stuff and that all kind of being driven from like the sea of politics. So yeah. cool to see them rope that in. Yeah, agreed. And yeah, I like what you said about the uh, like the understated um, but very skillful execution of the technical elements making the movie timeless. I think you're right. I think you hit the nail on the head with that. Yeah, yeah, I think this one will hold up for a while. Anything else you want to get in before we wrap this episode up? Nah, that's all I got. All right. Well, that is our discussion on The Omen, everybody. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That helps other people find our show, and we appreciate it. If you want to connect with us, you can go to horrormovieclub.com. And on the social links drop down, you'll find Facebook and Twitter where we announce what movie we're going to cover next week. And you'll find a link to our Discord where you can come to our Discord server where we've got a great community of people always talking about horror movies. Uh, I'm on there a lot too, so you can come check me on there. If you want horror movie merchandise, we have a coaster set. Just Google Horror Movie Club Coaster Set. That'll take you to Amy Mae Pop Art's Etsy page, and you can enter the code Movie Club for 20% off. Amy Mae Pop Art also designed our logo, so thank you for that, Amy. Uh, you can email us podcast at horrormovieclub.com also on horrormovieclub.com is a big old button that links to our Patreon site where we've got some bonus content for you for a dollar a month you can come listen to some extra episodes and let's see I think until next time if somebody in your family passes away god forbid uh, don't try to replace them with somebody else in the hopes that nobody will notice (laughs) yeah that was a messed up lie, wasn't it? Right, yeah. Yeah. What do you mean my grandpa looks different? This is definitely the same grandpa I love. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what you mean. <laughs> Just, don't, uh, don't look on his inner thigh. Yeah. <laughs>